We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Our scripture reading tonight is in Second Chronicles in the 8th chapter. If you would join me there, Second Chronicles in the 8th chapter. In Second Chronicles chapter 8, uh, we're, we've just finished reading about the dedication of the temple. And uh, it says in verse 1 of chapter 8, It came to pass at the end of 20 years, when Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house, that the cities which Hiram had given to Solomon, Solomon built them. And he settled the children of Israel there. And Solomon went to Hamath Zobah and seized it. He also built Tadmor in the wilderness and all the storage cities which he built in Hamath. He built Upper Beth Horon and Lower Beth Horon, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars, and Baalath, and all the storage cities that Solomon had, and all the chariot cities, and the cities of the cavalry, and all that Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, and Lebanon, and in all the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, who were not of Israel, that is, their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel did not destroy. From these Solomon raised forced labor, as it is to this day. But Solomon did not make the children of Israel servants for his work. Some were men of war, captains of his officers, captains of his chariots and his cavalry. And others were chiefs of the officials of King Solomon, 250 who ruled over the people. Now Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house he had built for her, For he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. Then Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before the vestibule, according to the daily rate, offering according to the commandment of Moses for the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the appointed yearly feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And according to the order of David his father, he appointed the divisions of the priests for their service, the Levites for their duties, to praise and serve before the priests as the duty of each day required, and the gatekeepers by their divisions at each gate. For so David, the man of God, had commanded. They did not depart from the command of the king to the priests and Levites concerning any matter or concerning the treasuries. Now, all the work of Solomon was well-ordered from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord until it was finished. So the house of the Lord was completed. Then Solomon went to Ezion Geber and Elath on the seacoast in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent him ships by the hand of his servants and servants who knew the sea. They went with the servants of Solomon to Ophir and acquired 450 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon." Well, I thought about going in two different directions tonight for a little message from the Word, and uh, this was uh, actually connected to one of them. The other one that I won't really go down the path of too far this evening was just thinking about what we read this morning with regard to the shepherds of Israel and the allusion to uh, John chapter 10 that I made and also Psalm 23 during the reading. 
but uh, to think about John chapter 10 and the Lord's uh, statement that he's a good shepherd and that uh, his sheep know his voice, that he's the door of the sheep, that uh, all that come in some other way are, are, are thieves and robbers. Uh, and you're familiar with those, those figures of speech that he uses, both as the door and also as the good shepherd. It's interesting that God said in uh, Ezekiel that he's going to gather the sheep from, that are scattered throughout all the lands, and the Lord uh, said something similar but a bit different when he said that he had sh- other sheep which are not of this fold. He had them they must, uh, he must gather as well and bring them together. Speaking, of course, of the Gentile nations, those who would come to faith in Christ uh, thereafter. So uh, that was one possible direction. This was the other. And uh, when I read Second Corinthians, Second uh, Chronicles, rather, 8, then I thought, hmm, I think I'll point this out and uh, use a portion of Scripture that we have looked at before, but not for a little while, in First Corinthians. So Second Chronicles 8, 1 Corinthians 10 is where we'll be this evening. I'll just point out um, in Second Corinthians, sorry, Second Chronicles, I'm going to get them mixed up all night tonight, Second Chronicles uh, chapter 8, verse 11. I want to just read that again. Now Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house he had built for her, for he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. What is he doing there? It's easy to read over that passage and just say, okay, well, that's just what he did, and that's a report of history, but, and it is a report of history. The problem with it is that you have a massive compromise exposed right there in that verse. Um, he wasn't supposed to have taken the wife, as a wife, the daughter of Pharaoh in the first place. This was one of those either political alliances or alliance of just pure lust and out of line with the command of God to marry within the nation as if there weren't enough suitable women for him to select from the nation of Israel as the king. He certainly would not have had any problem with that at all. And of course, as you know, he multiplied for himself not only chariots and horses, but also wives, and uh, he did so very unwisely. They ended up, in the end, turning his heart away from God and to the false gods that they also worshipped. But here is one instance of this compromise, and it's not so much the uh, marriage that I want to focus on, although that is a problem, a serious problem, but it is this further thought in verse 11, where he, he figured, this was his problem, he started figuring, okay? Uh, he figured, if I'm going to do this, then I better not do that. And he, he kind of thought of himself as doing a good thing by bringing his wife to a certain set-apart place, but not too close to the things of God, because those were the holy things, and they were not to be defiled with common or unclean or Gentile people. And so he had this kind of, he had this underlying compromise that was, you know, the situation for the whole thing. And then on top of that, he layers this kind of feel-good, you know, well, I'm being really careful about the things of God sort of notion. And I'm going to, you know, not defile the, the, the holy place 
because the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. And it's for those of us that are reading clearly, thinking clearly, it's just one of those, you know, hand-to-the-forehead moments where you're like, Solomon, don't you get it that you are compromised from the beginning and compromising on a continual basis by doing this, and your thinking, your thinking is somehow skewed so that you think you're doing a good thing by you know, having her housed you know, in a place that's off as you are married to her and all that marriage entails, and you're, you're entangled up with that situation, and you think that you're doing a favor to God by putting her off in this side you know, uh, house, as it were. It's easy to see that in the life of Solomon. But tonight, we're here, and I'm, I'll just tell you right now, we're not going to learn anything new. We already know what we have read in Scripture, and we'll review what we've studied in 1 Corinthians 10. My concern is that you evaluate yourself, and I evaluate myself, to see are there areas in our lives where we're like Solomon, where we're like, um, yeah, you know, I've got this problem in my life, but if I just kind of keep it in the closet, it'll be all right. Uh, If I just ignore it, it'll be okay. If, uh, I, you know, I, I've treated, you know, God, I, I won't bring that into the church. That's too much, but I can bring it up close, but not too close to the assembly of believers, to God's house. I wonder if there are areas in our lives where we have compromised and maybe we aren't seeing it as clearly as we should. Maybe we're like Solomon thinking that we can get away with it. And our passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, that will highlight the same kind of idea here and really show that God deserves a wholehearted loyalty from his people, a wholehearted loyalty, a united heart, not a divided heart. And so let's look at that. So Paul is uh, in the midst of, in 1 Corinthians, writing to the church, a very troubled church uh, with lots of problems in it, and he's defending his own uh, apostleship in the midst of this whole area of idol worship and conscience issues and things of that nature. And he talks to them about the connection of the people of Israel with Moses, how they were baptized you know, in the, in the cloud and in the sea and baptized in, uh, rather into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and uh, ate the same spiritual food and drink and so on. But verse 5 says, but with most of them God was not pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And it says in verse 6, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and and do not become idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a uh, kind of a, um, what's the word? A, A cover word for idolatrous activity euphemism for that kind of activity. Nor let us commit sexual immorality or tempt Christ, verse 9, or complain, verse 10, and then verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we have the clear application of the Old Testament principles to us today. Those things were written for our learning. 
our examples so that we would be admonished and not go down the same path that the children of Israel went down. And we come to verses 14 then, and actually 13 is a very important verse, but I wasn't planning on treating that tonight. That's the verse about no temptation has taken you except such as is common to man. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So he says then in 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, in all of the kind of back and forth between Paul and the Corinthians, they had this situation where they're living in a society where idol temples and meat sacrifice to idols was just commonplace. Um, And, you know, we live in a society where that is not commonplace, but there are other things that are commonplace and, and the people of God in other areas of the world or other generations might look back at us and say, what do you mean you had a nation that was, you know, abortion all the time and millions of children killed and all of that? So that's just ridiculous. And we'd look back and say, what do you mean they were going to idol temples and all of this? Well, the idol temple was something like what um, far, uh, or far gone or liberal churches are today. They become kind of a social club a place where people go to meet. They have birthday parties there. They have, you know, special events there. They rent them out for, you know, graduation parties, so to speak, or whatever, that sort of thing. And so they would have that very commonly in their, in their culture. And the Corinthians are, are wondering about things offered to idols. Can we eat them or not? And so Paul tells them in uh, the conscience issues in chapters 8 and, and 9 and 10, especially 8 and 10, um, and says, you know, look, there, there are no other gods. If you go to the meat market, you buy the meat, just buy it, cook it, eat it. Don't ask any questions for conscience sake. But if somebody tells you that it's been offered to an idol, then back off and say, well, I don't want to have any participation with that because I don't want to be seen to be connected with that idolatrous worship. And so Paul is now going to maybe correct a little bit of a misunderstanding that the Corinthians could have gotten and tell them, look, the bottom line is you need to flee from idolatry. Maybe, you know, you imagine yourselves in the shoes of a person who lives in Corinth. You agree that knowledge puffs up, an idol is nothing, there's only one God. Uh, You understand there are people who don't get that idea um, and that if, you know, you eat food offered to idols or you don't, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't make you a better person either way. And yes, we should be careful not to offend other people, especially weaker brothers that we could cause to stumble. So you plan to participate in these, some of these events. Quietly, though, not while other believers are present. You feel it's unimportant if you participate with non-Christians because their conscience isn't bothered by the idolatrous worship that's going on there, the the food sacrifice to the idol, maybe the pronouncement of blessing that's given in the name of the idol or or whatever, the prayer that's made to the idol. Um, But, you know, you want to keep your foot in the door with your former friends and have social interaction with them and, you know, um, you don't want to give up, you know, eating the good meat that they have in the idol temple, the restaurant as it were. Uh, doesn't seem like a harm to participate at least occasionally, but if you th- if you're thinking that way based on what Paul has said, Paul's going to kind of intrude into your mental world, and he's going to say, "Now wait a minute, 
I'm not talking about going ahead and participating in fellowship with idolatry. That's not what I said. You know, he said you can buy the meat at the meat market and it doesn't matter if it's been offered or not. It kind of just gets all washed out when it goes into the open market and it's not now closely associated with the idol. So the Corinthians are, again, here almost kind of like Solomon. Well, like, I'm not going to get too closely involved with it, but I'll kind of keep my distance in some ways, and I understand the principles, and I'll be okay. I'll be able to use those liberties, not understanding that really the point of Paul's writing here is to restrain your liberties so that you will expand your ministry opportunities with others and not cause unnecessary offense. So they were soft-pedaling a little bit if they thought this way. And you start on in verse 14 and you're, you're saved from that soft-pedaling because Paul flatly says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Don't, don't go, you know, like, how close to the edge can I come without coming too close to that issue. Flee from idolatry. Run away from it. Um, and, and don't, by the way, for us today, don't compartmentalize this into the uh, box of, well, I'm talking to the nation of Israel here, and this doesn't really apply to you. Remember verses 6 and 11? These things were written for your admonition, your learning, and we're going to see very clearly that that's the case uh, upcoming. Uh, there is application here to, to us. Flee idolatry. So, Do you mean to say that it was not harmless to get close to the idols, even to eat in the idol temple like the rest of the society did? It it was not harmless. It was, in fact, a harm for you to do that. Paul is saying that it's not okay to lightly esteem God's admonitions about this. It's not okay to have close connection with idols, even though there is only one God. That's still true. What are the idols? Well, let's see. Go down to... um, Verse 20, the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. You see that? So yes, there are no other gods, but there are demons. And Paul does not want us to have a connection with them. So he gives us three examples now of the reason to flee from idolatry. And that reason is the matter of fellowship. The matter of fellowship. And this is where Solomon failed. He, uh, he was trying to have his one foot in one camp and the other foot in the other camp. You know, I want what I want as far as my wife is concerned, but I don't want to get her too close and, and, and cause God to be upset at me, which, you know, totally blows the mind, but that's how he was thinking. His wisdom was undercut by his lust, wasn't it? Yeah, unfortunately. Three cases now, three examples, Uh, and I'm talking about fellowship, meaning communion, sharing or partnership. You know, if you say, I don't want any part of that, then you're saying you don't want any fellowship with that thing. The question, did you take part, means did you share or have a fellowship with whatever that thing is in question. And and, and Paul starts out with the Lord's table first. In verse uh, 15, he says, I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. Verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion, there it is, of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. 
So the cup of blessing and the bread refer to the elements of the Lord's table. Uh, that one cup, the third cup uh, of, uh, of the Passover Seder, either the cup of redemption or the cup of blessing. Jesus took the cup after supper, which would have been the third one, gave thanks and called it the cup of the new covenant in his blood, which was poured out for the remission of our sins. When we partake of the cup, what we're doing is we are saying that we are participants in the blood of Christ. When we partake of the element of the bread, the, uh, the matzah, the unleavened bread, we are saying we are sharing a part of the salvation that Christ wrought in his body on the tree. So we're not, again, getting a part or obtaining a part of that share of salvation when we partake of the Lord's table, but rather what we're doing is we're symbolizing our participation in Christ already. And even though there are many members, we participate or fellowship in one, altogether in one Christ. In that manner, we share together. What we're doing is we're planting a, a flag in the ground and we're saying, hey, I am a Christian. I share a solidarity with Christ with all of Christ's people. Okay, so this principle of fellowship is going to inform the people in Corinth that they cannot partake at all of idolatry. Now look at the next example. Example two is in verse 18. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? And it's a rhetorical question, meaning yes, those who eat of the sacrifices are partakers of the altar. So here you have, what happened in the Old Testament sacrifices, by the way? Do you remember? You know that? Kind of picture that? They would sacrifice an animal, uh, burn up some of it entirely to God. They would give, uh, they would cook it. They would eat it. The, the people who offered it would eat it with the priests who were there offering with them. They'd have a fellowship meal in some of the rituals. And so they had a co-worshiping situation with God and with one another. Food was involved here as well, as it often is in a fellowship ritual. And a connection is displayed in the ritual that is associated with eating and drinking. That connection is the worshiper is saying, I am with God, the God who gave us this sacrificial system. I'm, I'm obeying him. I'm sharing a part with him and with you, Levites and priests, uh, in this worship ritual. They're making a statement about their communion with each other. And then the third example, the third example is in uh, verse uh, 19. He said, Paul says, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to an idol is anything? Rather, he says, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And here's the kind of conclusion. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. No fellowship with ungodly stuff. There's a serious problem here. Even though we know, yes, there is only one God, but there are real demons as well. And God does not today want us to at all ever participate with them. He says, Paul does, 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons you're going to be a divided soul if you try to say, yep, I'm here and I'm here. We st you still haven't figured out how to be two in two places at once, have you? 
You cannot. You have to be in one place at once. You're either going to serve one master or you're going to serve the other master. But no man can serve two masters. Okay, God or money or God or idols. And so this is Paul's message. And it would have done Solomon a good deal of good if he had thought about this and said, look, I cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. I cannot partake of the holy places of God while I'm doing ungodly and unholy things or have an unholy alliance with a pagan person in the very uppermost echelons of Israelite government under God. So the idea of fellowship. We don't want to have, try to have fellowship with two different un, uh, unlike things at one time. Um, with, the, with the idol, you're saying, hey, stake in the ground. I'm with these people if you're fellowshipping with them. With the Lord's table or with the sacrifices that Israel had, you're saying, hey, I'm one of them. I fellowship, my part is with them. So Paul concludes with a final exhortation in the last two verses. You cannot drink both, uh, you know, the one and the other at the same time. You can't have one foot on, you know, one boat and one foot on the other boat. It doesn't work that way. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So you cannot have a double-minded loyalty. Um, Jesus said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. One master. Again, you cannot fellowship at both the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Um, The Lord deserves and demands our full loyalty. The devil doesn't care if he has our full, full loyalty, because if he has part of it, that's enough to really mess us up. Okay, Of course, he would like more, I'm sure, but if he gets any part of your life, then he is happy. Look at this, the scriptures that tell us that we need to have a united loyalty. Uh, What's the greatest commandment in the law? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, of course, the next is like it. The second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Psalm 86, 11, teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 119, 2, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Not half their heart, not 75% of their heart, their whole heart. Psalm 141, 4, do not incline my heart to any evil thing. It's kind of like, Matthew chapter 6, where the Lord uh, teaches us to pray. And what does he say about us in temptation? Lead us not into temptation. Regulate the experiences that you permit into our lives so that we will not fall into sin because we are Christians and we don't like sin and we don't want to do sin and we don't want to displease you. It bothers our souls when we think of the possibility of falling into sin. To practice, uh, verse, this is back to Psalm 141.4. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity, and do not let me eat of their delicacies. James 1.8 exhorts us not to be double-minded, unstable in all our ways. 1 Kings 18.21, 
How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if the world is where it's at, or your own personal pleasure is king, or entertainment, or comfort, or money, or whatever, follow that. But don't play or pretend that you're following God if you're not doing so with a united heart. Don't play around. Just give it up. Verse 22 quotes Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, about God's jealousy. When, when, when Israel chose idols over the true God who had provided for them through the Exodus and the Red Sea crossing and, and all of the you know, manna and water and quail and all that, all of that was a severe offense against the living God, far worse than when a friend dumps you or when your spouse leaves you or whatever. Of course, this jealousy that God is talking about here uh, is the kind of a good kind of jealousy, the kind of jealousy you should have for your spouse, for their purity, for the protection of your relationship, for their godliness, for the maintenance of our vows. This is a jealousy that is rightly yours uh, over what is rightly yours, not something that belongs to someone else. That's the bad kind of jealousy. Um, and so God is jealous for his people. He wants their worship. He wants them because he cares for them. It's like, you know, parent to child, jealous for them to do well because they are connected with you and you want them to do well. You don't want them to fail or to have unnecessary trouble in their lives or difficulty if they go the way that youth sometimes goes. So don't provoke the Lord to jealousy unless... You think you have more muscle than he does. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> Are you stronger than he is? Are you going to just set aside his word? This is something like what I was saying this morning. Somebody who says, you can't tell me not to be anxious. Well, I just did. But God does. God tells you. And so if you say, look, that's there. I'm going to set that aside and I'm going to go my own way. Boy, that is... That is bad news. You think you're going you're gonna to outwit God? He's already 50 million steps ahead of you, you know? And plus, he's stronger than you are. He's more capable. We, we, we shall not provoke the Lord to jealousy. Um, you know, he'll get you one way or the other if you think you're going to get away with that. Today, idolatry probably doesn't look just like it did in ancient Israel, of course. Well, not here. Not in the United States, certainly, right? And we don't have idols. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> well, there are idols around the world that look pretty much like what they did back in Paul and Paul's day in the Corinthians. But heart idols are still always a definite problem. Ezekiel 14 talks about setting up idols in our hearts. You cannot have things in your heart that rank higher than God and then expect God to answer your inquiries as if your relationship with him is just fine. And so any failure in this area of divided loyalty or failures to flee from idolatry is a big problem. But it's reversible. It's reversible. If you confess your sin and repent, turn from your idols, from your self-centeredness, from your sin, God will be merciful to you. And so as we approach the table tonight, examine your heart and make sure that you have a united loyalty to him, not a divided one. And if in any wise there's a division... And I'm sure all of us could say, yeah, I sense that there's kind of a pull in this direction or that direction, not you know, straight ahead to God. 
let's confess that and cleanse, be cleansed of that by God's grace through the work of His Son, which substituted, who substituted for us as a sacrifice for sinners. He who did no sin took on Himself our sins so that He could pay your penalty instead of us having to do it ourselves. If you believe in Him for salvation, then Him alone, then you will be rescued from your sin and be cleansed and be put into His family. Then you'll be able to have that united heart and united fellowship with Him instead of this kind of divided loyalty that just is going to be, in the end, utter confusion and failure. So let us, as Paul exhorts us here, have a wholehearted, united, undivided loyalty toward Him, not like Solomon, who was trying to, you know, inch things a little closer to Jerusalem, but not too close, you know. Let's just just forget about it. He should have never taken that wife in the first place. He would never have this problem. He should have had one Jewish woman as his wife, and then he wouldn't have to, like, do all these machinations in his mind to think that he was doing something that was okay before God. And for us, let's not, you know do the clever machinations in our own mind to try to say, oh, I'm living for God, but eh, don't look in the closet too much, you know, that sort of thing. Let's, let's focus on that. We'll take a moment to reflect, and um, let me pray as we do that, and then we'll, we will have to uh, pause uh, or stop the live stream for tonight when I'm done praying, and then we will share the elements of the table together as a church family in the gathered church here. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the privilege of looking at your word tonight and thinking through these matters once again. And Lord, although we might not have learned any new things or facts, we've been reminded of a very important principle of having a united heart with you. And I pray that we will ponder that deeply and carefully in the next moments and that we will be able to share the elements of the table as a church together. Lord, for those that aren't with us, I pray that they will find themselves in an assembly soon where they can share the Lord's table elements and uh, the fellowship that is thus represented by doing so. In the meanwhile, Lord, keep each one of us close to yourself, close to your heart, and not provoking you to jealousy if we have another love or another suitor or another thing that we tend to put in place of our God. Lord, we know that it's not good to provoke the head of all things to a jealous state against us. So help us to be united in our fear of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.